I connected the tubing to the tank. I put the clip on the tubing. I put the mask over on uh, Mr. Hyde's face because he could not move that much. He could barely move his left hand, uh, his left forearm. And I instructed him then if he was sure, then he all he had to do was move his left forearm a bit and pull. It was a short string of about six or eight inches to the clip uh, tied around his finger. And he then pulled the string and the clip came off the tubing and the, it was a slow flow of gas, very, very slow uh, volume. Uh, and uh, he then went on and died. I assisted Thomas Hyde in a, in a merciful suicide. There's no doubt about that. I stated emphatically. 64611 People versus Jack Kevorkian. He's charged with suicide assisting. It isn't Kevorkian that's on trial. It isn't assisted suicide and euthanasia that's on trial. You know what's on trial? your civilization and your society. We're, we're fighting the Crusades here. We're fighting against religious fanatics, against personal freedom and rights. That's why this trial is so damn important. That was Jack Kevorkian explaining the procedures he used with his patient in assisting him with suicide, and then his lawyer, Jeffrey Figer, explaining the significance of the case, his client, and the upcoming trial. Jack Kevorkian in the 90s was on every cover of every magazine, on every news show, because he was advocating that people should be able to commit suicide and that he should be able to help them when they were in extreme pain and suffering. And there was a huge debate in the country that was brought to the forefront in his numerous trials where he assisted people in committing suicide. We're gonna talk to Jeffrey Figer, his lawyer today, about those cases and specifically the first case that went to trial. It's really a fascinating look into a case that was uh, on every headline and, and a debate about the morality of assisted suicide. Here's Jeffrey Figer in his opening statement. And then at the very end, after the interview, you'll hear some of the direct and cross of the wife of the person who committed suicide and of the closing by the prosecutor and Jeffrey Figer. I look forward to your comments and reviews after this episode. In For the Defense, I'm David Oscar Marcus. Next. The only thing that does not disintegrate when you are dying of ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, is your mind. And so if you can imagine the terror of knowing that your entire body is disintegrating and that you will die fully conscious, aware, and finally choking to death on your own spit. It is not a crime in this state to assist in a suicide if your intent is to relieve suffering, even though the procedure that you use may cause or hasten death. All right. Well, this morning we have the great Jeffrey Figer uh, on For the Defense, and we're going to be talking about um, one of the most important criminal cases, in fact, a string of cases with the Jack Kevorkian trials. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. So, you know, the Dr. Death, Jack Kevorkian, um, he was charged with assisting folks in suicide. This was the biggest story of its day. Um how did you get this case um, when you were back in, what year was it, 1990? How did you get this case? Um, I was 
relatively well known, not like I am today or not like after the Kevorkian cases or during the Kevorkian cases, but I guess locally here, um, I was a fairly well known uh, trial lawyer. I had won a few million dollar cases and I had some notoriety because I had uh, won a million dollar case against the largest hospital system here in Michigan. At that time, it was the William Beaumont Hospital System, and they hadn't paid on a couple million dollar judgment. I had sent uh, deputies out to to repossess their furniture, and it had made a lot of news. <laughs> Kevorkian and his sister uh, had seen that on television. They were actually interviewing lawyers because they had the idea correctly. At least his sister had a lot of common sense, Margot that uh, he was going to be charged with the uh, uh, assisted suicide of Janet Atkins, who'd come from Washington with her husband, Ron. And uh, so she was uh, taking him around to visit lawyers, uh, most of whom were terribly frightened of the idea of representing him, thought he was, uh, he was off his rocker and were afraid what it would do to his or their careers. So. He wasn't having a lot of success uh, in obtaining legal representation, as I recall. It's so strange, right? Because because so few cases go to trial these days, and this case was made for trial, and yet people were running away from trying it. It's crazy to me. Well, they were running away from representing him, uh, not from trial, because the trial he hadn't even been charged yet. Yeah, but they were run. They were afraid. A lot of lawyers, contrary to our ethical duties to to represent the misbegotten and the damned uh, and uh, those who uh, uh, society might otherwise frown upon, um, they're worried about their own skin, their own reputation, their own money. And they thought that whatever association they might have with Jack Borkian would rub off on them and hurt them. Of course, it, it worked exactly the opposite once they understood that. They were terribly jealous of the fact that I was representing him. But I never thought like that. I thought about Kevorkian in terms of civil rights. And I thought what he was doing was 100% correct in terms of the right of Americans, if we have any civil rights at all, to control our own destinies at the end of our lives. So to me, it, it, it was a no-brainer because it was a civil rights uh, case. And I'd always been interested in that. My dad was a civil rights lawyer. So... That uh, didn't trouble me at all. And also, I was relatively young. I didn't have much to lose, I, but I wasn't afraid of losing. Uh, not, not losing the case. I was, I, I'm always afraid of losing a case. I wasn't afraid of losing some kind of wealth or uh, money that I get from other cases. I, it, that never occurred to me. I, and I don't know why it occurs to those lawyers, but their, their self-interest always comes before their, their representation of clients, I find. It's so strange. So, so, so strange. Um, you know, you mentioned civil rights and, and, and how, you know, you became well-known before this trial. A lot of your work is civil, but this was a criminal case. Do you find that, that it, you can bounce back and forth between the two? I only do criminal work. Uh, I couldn't imagine dealing with all the uh, uh, civil uh, cases, but, but how do you do both? Yeah, it's a unique uh, perspective because I do do both. And very few lawyers do both. You're correct. Um, I've had the luxury of being able to pick the criminal cases that interest me. Um, 
my firm primarily handles large civil cases, but uh, because I have handled criminal cases, it gives me a, a, a vastly different perspective. Um, most civil lawyers have never, ever really handled a criminal case and don't right. really understand the other side of the coin. It's quite revealing, too, because things prosecutors who are the plaintiffs in criminal cases do and get away with and, and are permitted to do by courts when, when, when constitutional rights are at stake are really eye-opening compared to civil cases where I find now my perspective is, is that the, the court system is set up to protect the wealthy and the civil defendants, the, 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 the government insurance companies, big corporations, they get more protection than criminal defendants. And you wouldn't actually see that unless you were in the criminal courts and you saw what was going on and you saw what prosecutors do and what judges do in terms of leaning over backwards and uh, in, in not protecting the rights of those who are accused. It's true. You know, big corporations get um, the benefit of the doubt and the government, for whatever reason, in criminal cases gets the benefit of the doubt. It always amazes me that if a criminal defense lawyer would do some of the things that these prosecutors would do, we'd all uh, be in trouble. You know, you mentioned if a civil, def if a civil defense lawyer uh, or a civil plaintiff, I'm a, I'm a plaintiff and I'm a criminal defense lawyer. If a civil plaintiff lawyer did the things that prosecutors do oh. on a regular basis, we'd get all our cases mistried because the judges protect the big corporations and the uh, uh, the insurance companies. Um, and it's outrageous what the judges allow uh, the prosecutors to do uh, in, in criminal cases. And, and that's a perspective that most lawyers don't have. I do because I handle both. I, I, I honestly don't handle a lot of criminal cases because one, they don't interest me. I'm only interested in those that have a, a a justification for me representing them. I'm not going to handle the run of the mill criminal cases because I'm just not interested in doing it. You know, you, you mentioned the civil rights aspect of the case and, and that was a big theme at the time in the media. Remember it's not one case. It, no, it's, it's, it, it, it's many, uh, it was six murder trials. And so you have to think of Kevorkian in terms of the 10 year period that I represented him. Uh, there were many, many cases. Each case was different based upon the person that he had assisted. So he was charged with murder six times. I think we did a number of other cases, too, that that uh, were somehow offshoots of that. So it's it's not just one case. No, of course. Person. No, of course. Maybe we should focus on the Tom Hyde case. I think that was the first one. And no, it wasn't the first one, but it was... Uh, it might have been the first, well, no, Janet Atkins was the first one. Thomas Hyde might have been the second. And I, in that case, never went to trial because Judge McNally dismissed it uh, in the preliminary examination because I convinced him that there was no law against assisted suicide. Uh, after they passed a law immediately after that to, to ban assisted suicide, I think the Hyde case was the first case that was tried. Ah. Okay. So in talking about that first case that was tried, obviously, and even with Atkins and over the 10-year period, your theme in the media was what you just talked about. You know, this is a civil rights issue. Of course, the prosecutors tried to make it about complying with the law. And you had even the Surgeon General come out and say, uh, your client was a serial killer. I mean, it was, you know, all over the news. It was crazy. 
I mean, it's, how- it's laughable. And, and they tried to make it about Kevorkian and I made it about the, uh, the patients and they could never be successful as long as I was uh, representing them. Tell me about how important it is to use the media in a case like this. I mean, you know, you and Kevorkian obviously use the media quite uh, well to your advantage. Is that, was that part of the plan when you took on the case? No, it developed. I mean, I was, I, I think I have a natural talent, a knack, if you will. My brother was a lead singer than that. But I have a talent uh, in terms of media. And ultimately, Kevorkian didn't really speak as much as people think he did. It was very selective, the places that I, I, uh, I don't know if I permitted him, but I suggested that he speak. Other than that, I was primarily the mouthpiece. Although, if you go back and you, you see these, a lot of the news coverage, it looks as if Kevorkian is talking a lot, but he really wasn't talking a lot. I was keeping him as, as if, to use a, a, a quaint phrase, as muzzled as I could, because I didn't think he did himself a lot of good when he'd be out there. Uh, and he appears very uh, uh, strident. That isn't the way I wanted him to to be, but but it was important to to try this case in the media uh, and and to get out the fact that this would get out into the public's perception that this was about everybody. This was about everybody's right to decide how much they wanted to suffer before they died, and it had nothing to do with Kevorkian. You know, you you talk about um, Kevorkian being strident. Before the Hyde case, I mean, he basically went on the news and said, you know, I, not in so many words, arrest me if you dare. He um, always did that. He was always saying that. Um, and they did. Yeah, <laughs> they, they did a they, whole bunch. They didn't, uh, you know, he kept doing that. That was sort of goofy things. But he didn't do it a lot. But he did it. I mean, every time he did it, we knew he was going to get arrested and charged at least as long as the Oakland County prosecutor, a guy named Richard Thompson, uh, his real name was Tomasi, and he was actually another Armenian. I think he had a self-loathing. When Armenians change their name and anglicize uh, our Armenian name and a proud heritage, you, to understand Kevorkian, you have to understand his Armenian heritage. But in any ways, his, his adversary, his Jean Valjean, was, uh, was Thompson, and every Thompson was a pretty much of a religious lunatic. I think he went to work for uh, Ave Maria Law School after he got defeated in the mm. polls. And uh, every time Kevorkian did something, Thompson went after him. So Thompson was a good foil for me. Yeah, I saw I saw Thompson and also this guy, Timothy Kenny, went after you in the press for some reason. No, Tim Kenny was a prosecutor. He's now he's not a bad guy. Tim Kenny is the is now the chief judge in Wayne County, which is the largest county in Michigan. Huh. Uh, but at the time, he was a, a Wayne County prosecutor, and he did uh, he was just acting up. But uh, Tim Kenny is not a bad guy. I think he was just he was trying to do something. He's not really uh, that's not his fort uh, yeah. uh, uh, publicity. But he's 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 presently a judge. He's the chief judge in Wayne County. Interesting. They always make uh, the former prosecutors judges, you know, because uh, they, you know, these guys all, you know, they get used to doing, you know, this kind of civil work or civic work. They, they you get a paycheck, but it's not that hard a job. I'd shoot myself. <laughs> Me too. I could do it. 
So, so Jeff, where did you learn to try cases? I mean, you know, it seems to come so naturally when you were doing the Kevorkian uh, trials. Where, where do you get this knack? I'll use your, your uh, pun to your older brother. Where do you get it from? He's my younger brother, but I don't know. If I told you, I don't want to think about it too much. Um, it just, uh, it, it's, it's, it's something I had a talent for. I didn't know I did. I never wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I just ran out of degrees. I just, um, I wanted to have fun mostly, yeah. but I really good at what I do. I, and it's sort of like trying a food that you never knew you'd like or having a proclivity for a sport or a musical instrument that you never really thought about. And I just happen to have that ability. It's, I don't want to say it's God given, but um, I don't think it's something that I can necessarily learn or teach other people. It's just something that I have. And, and, and it's, mostly about just being ultimately it's about being myself and ultimately for any other lawyer i tell them it's about being yourself the most important thing you could ever do for yourself in terms of your legal skills is to uh, understand what motivates you and who you are and what you're all about and most people can't do that though that's a um it's a you know i, I can encourage a lot of people to do it but they generally don't like to look at themselves in the mirror and admit that they're all fucked up. <laughs> you know, I uh, I went back. I know this was six trials, of course, but I went back and watched a lot of the high trial before the interview. And and the opening, um, I'll quote your opening where you talked about the only thing that does not disintegrate with ALS is your mind. Uh, you die fully conscious, but you can't move. You're choking to death on your own spit. I mean, really powerful. Well, that's the way to die. That's, it's a terrible way to die. ALS, you know, I mean, if you... I mean, if you really want to examine that, we sanitize everything. But the reason people with ALS came to Kevorkian uh, and Thomas Hyde and Thomas Yauk, who was the guy he uh, finally went to prison for when he decided he represented himself and he, and he did an injection that they played on 60 Minutes. Um, that's a very horrific uh, disease. It's not a disease uh, it's a disease that everyone can understand why somebody wouldn't want to go to the end. And what's so important about that uh, in terms of what the quote was that you just gave was that that disease does not destroy your mind at any time until the moment that you die. In other words, you never lose, you know, compass mentis. Um, and that's not uh, a nice thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's an important thing. Because they always tried to portray Kevorkian as Machiavellian, that he was somehow leading these people off in, into a path that they shouldn't be going, which is entirely untrue, that the people who Kevorkian assisted were all very independent, very bright people who um, wanted to uh, be masters of their own destiny. And, and of course, that's such a powerful theme and one that worked throughout these cases. But in the high case, you also raised um, venue as as an argument. I'm interested, you know, in why that was used, and do you think that was effective uh, at the trial? I don't know. Remind me what I did. I don't yeah. Know. So, so, so the the argument in the high case, the second argument um, was, hey, the murder did not happen um, in in this town. It happened in this town. Um, if you find if you find that it was murder, you know, obviously your argument was that it was not. But if you find that it was, they have venue all wrong. It happened in a different place. 
uh, in a different county in Michigan than, than uh, you claim it happened, prosecuted. Yeah, I think what happened was that Thomas Hyde's body was brought to Wayne County. That's right. He died in Oakland County. But I don't think that was the basis of it. I might have raised that at some point, but that certainly wasn't a defense to the, uh, the ultimate verdict. That yeah. might have been uh, something that I raised early on just to play around. I didn't mind being in Wayne County, by the way. Um, so I'm not, that doesn't stick in my mind why that was, uh, I raised that, but I, I might've just been playing around in terms of their sort of concomitant theories about what happened. I might've just been pointing to the jury that they can't even get their facts straight. They don't know what happened, where it happened, when it happened, because they hadn't, all they're interested in is getting Kevorkian. I think it's more like that rather than a venue defense. That was not the purpose of that argument. And, and Jeff, you know, one of the things I saw over and over again was that during these trials, during these cases, Kevorkian kept doing it. And so they kept raising his bond, arresting him. Uh, he was on a hunger strike at, at one point. And I saw one of his opponents actually posted the bond for him, which I thought was really weird. What, what, ha- what was going on there? Well, he didn't deserve to be in prison, and the, the bonds were relatively low anyways. Um, and uh, he was a great, it, it, for the purposes of, of, of that issue, um, the, the issue being uh, um, the right not to die, the right to control your own destiny. He was, I think, the perfect, everybody says he wasn't the perfect client, but I think he was because a different type of person would have been uh, totally intimidated by the the the, the, uh, the the method and the brutality by which the government was going after Kevorkian. And they would say, a normal person would have said, I'm not doing this. But the more you confronted Kevorkian, that's why I say you have to understand his Armenian heritage and how the Armenians are just never going to be uh, uh, subdued, how the Turks thought they could take over the Armenians, they're out of their minds. The Armenians don't forget. And so with Kevorkian, uh, he was just not going to be cowed. He was not going to be intimidated uh, through whatever force. So, and, and I think he was the perfect uh, person and history will remember him as such. History will remember him as a very, very great man. And today, I'm jumping ahead, I don't know your line of questioning, but I can tell you this, and it didn't exist in the 1990s when I was representing Kevorkian. Uh, hospice now is entirely different because of Kevorkian. In hospice now, you can get as many drugs as you want, freely given without any supervision, and you can do it to yourself freely, and they do it every day, exactly what Kevorkian was doing. Huh. In fact, that hospice you'd get a lollipop of some analgesic, but nothing you could get would be able to end your life. Today, because of Kevorkian, you can get as many uh, drugs as you want. You can hook yourself up or they'll hook you up and you can push the button all day long and kill yourself, which they do. And nobody says a word about it. Was there any way to keep him off the stand? I know he testified in-, in uh, No, I, I, I had to keep, put him on the stand. I didn't want to keep him off the stand. I had to have them on the stand. They want to hear that in this case, the jury wanted to hear from them. I mean, we're taught keep the, you know, as, as lawyers, generally clients don't do themselves any good by getting on the stand and, you know, the, the, the benefit the, the reasonable doubt and 
were taught that, uh, you know, um, if, if they haven't proved their case beyond a reasonable doubt, there's no reason to expose your client to cross-examination, blah, blah, blah. Kevorkian, it, th this case really didn't follow any rules that we as lawyers learn in terms of criminal cases because right. it had to do with uh, it had to do with perceptions and feelings, and uh, without hearing from Kevorkian, um, that wouldn't be a good thing in 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 this setting. That wouldn't be true in most criminal cases, but in in, in this setting, uh, it, well, I can't say it's not true. I think the admonition, my experience is the admonition to keep your client off the stand isn't always the best admonition. Sometimes it's right, sometimes it's not, but we as criminal lawyers almost always like to keep our clients off the stand and that's not necessarily correct. You know, Kenny, Kenny obviously went after him and, and one of the lines of, um, of cross was that he was a weird dude, uh, is, is, you know, Kenny kept putting it and was obsessed with death and, and, and went after some of his writings. Was that, was that effective or, or just fell flat? Yeah, not effective. Everybody knew. Kevorkian is very likable in person. He's very, uh, uh, engaging. Um, and his portrayal by these people who don't know him falls flat when you get in a room with Kevorkian and, and, and see him, he, 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 you get a good feeling. You don't get a, a weird or strange feeling. He's, he's, he's a very engaging person. So I don't think that necessarily worked. I, I have to say in watching, going back and watching the trial, I thought Hyde's wife was the most powerful witness uh, in that case. And, and she talked about Kevorkian being the only person who would help her husband. And, and uh, to me, it was just so incredibly powerful to hear from her. Yeah, she was a very loving woman, and she cared about Tom. And uh, um, she was very supportive of Kevorkian. Um, and, of course, uh, the whole, the real defense in this case is this was Thomas's decision. And, this was, and, and her name was Heidi. Um, and this was their decision, and it was not Kevorkian's. And Kevorkian was just the facilitator to the, the doctor who, who said, in this case, it would be appropriate. So, yes, she was a very, very powerful advocate, um, both in the courtroom and on the videotape. One of the things Kevorkian did very well was do these videotapes, which we always showed that they, and they were extremely helpful because they showed that these were the decisions of the patients. This wasn't a Machiavellian doctor manipulating these poor people, helpless people to commit suicide. These were very intelligent people who were telling the physician they did not want to suffer anymore. You know, one of the prosecutor's attempts on cross with both Heidi's wife and everybody was, you know, this, did you expect Heidi to die? Did you expect the person no, to die? I, no, his name is Hyde. His, I believe his, uh, his wife, she was actually his girlfriend. I don't know if they were really oh, married. Oh. Heidi. I got, oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I messed that up. But anyway, no. the, the. But his name, you're correct in your pronunciation. Her name was Heidi. Got it. So, in you know, the cross-examination of the wife um, was, you, know, you expected him to, to die and not come home from that. And I, I just thought it was such a bizarre cross-examination. At one point, she said, I didn't take the pork chops out of the freezer, uh, Mr. Prosecutor, if that's what you're asking. I mean, it was just bizarre to me that he attacked the wife on cross. Yeah, it's all bizarre because it was a morality play 
I mean, Kabarkin was a criminal. It's just bizarre when you start trying to charge people with crimes and acting as if somebody, you know, took advantage and killed somebody else when that isn't what happened. This is uh, terribly sick and dying people who are making decisions about their own life. And you put it into a courtroom and you start acting as if something else happened. You look foolish in history. And they do. You're right. It doesn't make sense. And you're right. It was, it was silly. So I saw the closing and, and you start out the closing by saying Tom Hyde himself is speaking to you from the grave. He's saying, don't let me down. I mean, that is as powerful a closing as, as you can have. And before the verdict came out, a lot of the media was criticizing you for, for doing that. To me, it's, it's, it's a way to connect to the jury. Um, did you watch the media during the trial or you just stay away from it? What do you mean watch them? You know, watch the news at night and see what they're saying about the trial. Do you, do you read the paper about it? No, it? When you go, you leave the courtroom and if you go watch the coverage, it's like, did that really happen? I mean, they've cut it up and they've reported it so terribly. It has no, no resemblance to what was really happening in the courtroom. So, no, I didn't pay attention. Not because I didn't. I mean, I, I would have if somebody said you want to watch this, but. It's just so disappointing as to how the news media was portraying it. They, first of all, they always portray trials as sporting events. And secondly, they can't get it right. They just don't understand what's happening. And it's so disjointed. And so they don't really get the feel for what's really happening in a trial. Uh, news media are horrible at uh, reporting about trials. Horrible. Should, should we have uh, a gavel-to-gavel coverage of trials on TV so folks can watch? Is that a good thing? We used to. Court TV used to do it all the time. I think we still do. I think they're covering that Rittenhouse case right yeah. now. Gavel. Some states allow it. Some states don't. As you know, the federal courts don't allow it. Um, it never bothered me, honestly. I, I, I did it probably in terms of the inception of that phenomena on court TV. I think I had more cases covered than any other lawyer uh, during the 10 years that court TV started. Uh, in addition to the Kevorkian cases, um, they'd cover, you know, the Jenny Jones case and everything. And it never bothered me. I, I'm not against it. So, so you win this trial, um, obviously to big, you know, fanfare and lots of folks are supporting you. It's not the kind of case though where you celebrate. I mean, is there a celebration after? What do you and uh, what do you and Kavorkin do after that first trial? Go. Yeah. So, I mean, I might have had a pizza with. <laughs> yeah, Kavorkin wasn't a big celebrator. You know, he didn't drink, he didn't swear, he didn't uh, womanize. He was a pretty straight guy. Uh, he was pretty committed. Um, but we knew it was coming. I mean, he wasn't stopping. We knew they were going to keep going after it. So it was just a, a, another calm before the storm. I mean, it felt good. Um, every one of the uh, victories felt good, but it wasn't the end. It and, never was the end. And, and so why did he end up representing himself in that case and, and, uh, and ultimately losing uh, the one that he lost? He, he represented himself. Right. I had represented him for 10 years. I'd run for governor of Michigan in 1998. Uh, and I asked him not to do anything while I'm running for governor. He respected that, but he had actually helped 
Thomas Yauk die. And he said, we got to ratchet this up, Jeff. We got to, uh, I've got to videotape it. So they know that I'm doing the injections, which he was, he, he no longer was using that suicide machine where the person supposedly pushed the button. It didn't really matter. Um, so I had convinced them to wait until, uh, I lost, which I'm glad I lost because I, I don't think I'd be sitting here today if I had won the, the gubernatorial race. But in any event, uh, after that uh, election, he, he released the tape to Mike Wallace uh, and uh, he got charged. And then he decided that he had learned everything he needed to learn from my 10 years of representing him. <laughs> He was a mat. That was his Achilles heel that he really never liked the idea that somebody else was representing him or, or could do something better than him. He, every great person has an Achilles heel and Kevorkian's Achilles heel was that he thought he was the master strategist and that he had learned enough uh, about the law that he could represent himself. I told him not to do it. I mean, everyone told him not to do it. Uh, um, but, uh, he did it and the rest is ridiculous that he got locked up for nearly eight, nine years in a Michigan penitentiary, totally waste of, uh, uh, the last years of his life. Ridiculous. Horrible. And, and, um, you know, you talked about earlier the impact that he had, you know, with hospice and, and other things, what other impacts from these cases do you think he had and you had from for how we deal with these situations. Well, I think the most important is what I told you, hospice, uh, that uh, people are absolutely free to get as much analgesics as they want. Um, a lot of states uh, now permit physician-assisted suicide. I think it's up to five or six or seven states. A lot of countries do too. Um, it started in the Netherlands, Germany. Um, Ultimately, it, it, it's an imperative. People have to have the right in a free society to make decisions about how much they want to suffer. And also, uh, the imperative is cost. Um, there's been some estimates that 80 to 90% of all Medicare and Medicaid funds are spent in the last 10 to 15 days of life keeping people alive without improving the quality of life. And uh, society will not be able to tolerate in terms of uh, uh, just the expenditure of money to extend life for 10 or 15 days unnecessarily. Uh, they just won't subsidize it. So all of those things will, will ultimately uh, in the future way uh, to, to, to uh, allow people to make the decisions that Kevorkian was advocating. He, he was advocating bottom line, an ultimate civil right, the right to be free from suffering, and to make decisions about your own life without the interference of government. And that's a very conservative ideal, by the way. That's something that sells to almost everybody. And that's if right. anyone in their lives have seen a loved one die, they understand it. So, you know, you mentioned that you're happy you didn't win the governor race. I'm just curious about that because you like lawyering so much more or you didn't want to stay out of politics or what? Yeah, I actually do. I mean, I ran for governor. I lost. Um, I understand... Uh, what politics are about. And uh, I like doing what I do better. It's a much more satisfying life. Um, uh, and I'm not just talking monetarily, I'm talking about what I do. Um, 
there's just something unclean feeling about politics. Uh, yeah. There's an amorality about it that I don't really like. And, it's, and today it's even worse. I mean, it wasn't as bad back then. There was some slight, uh, uh, you know, dignity about it today. I mean, can you imagine the people we get that have to live in closets? My God, who'd want to expose themselves to that crap? Yeah, no, being a lawyer is uh, so much more freeing and you can do what you want. Um, you, you know, you mentioned that your father was a lawyer, your brother's a performer, sort of this uh, this runs in the family being in court and, and uh, performing. Um, do you have any other uh, mentors or lawyers that you look to, to for, you know, when you were growing up as a lawyer? Um, I my best friend, Jerry Spence. Tell me about, about Jerry, because he's uh, known, obviously, as the greatest of the criminal and, and civil lawyers. And what makes him so great? Uh, he has a power that is, uh, that no one, again, no one could learn. Um, the, uh, it's God-given, his talent. Um, and it's, I like to... Uh, it's, it's impressive to me to see someone who, who I understand has that kind of power. There's very few that I've ever seen or, or known with that type of power. And I'm not talking about power other than an in, inborn power of, uh, of not just persuasion, but of, of authority. He, he's, uh, he's the guy. How's he, how's he doing? He's old. He's good. But he's other than forgetting, um, which happens to people who are 91, 92. Um, he's good. I saw him a couple of months ago. I stayed with him. Awesome. Well, this was really great. Uh, got a lot of great insights about the Kevorkian trial and about trial work in general. I want to thank you, Jeff, for appearing on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks. I hope I give you some grist for your mill. It wasn't just one acquittal here for Jeffrey Figer. He got acquittal after acquittal after acquittal, six of them, I think, for Dr. Kevorkian before Kevorkian ended up representing himself and getting convicted and going to prison. What a waste, as Figer says, but what a string of acquittals. Really impressive and incredible. And sad that the government kept bringing cases after it lost and lost and lost. I mean, what were we doing here? In any event, I have some really cool clips now from that first trial. You're going to hear Heidi's wife on the stand direct from Figer and then cross from the prosecutor. And then the closings, uh, just some clips from the prosecutor and Figer and then the verdict. Hope you enjoyed the episode. I'll see you next week in For the Defense. I'm David Oscar Marcus. Thanks again for listening. When he first said it, myotrophic lateral sclerosis, I thought, sclerosis, not good. Then I thought, what is that? And he said, it's Lou Gehrig's disease. And then I understood what it was, and I panicked, and my legs gave out from underneath me. Hyde deteriorated rapidly. Tom would choke so bad that he would fall down on the floor because he, could, he, was, he couldn't breathe. Tom didn't want hospice. Why? Tom was so proud. He was a very proud man, and he did not want people to come in and take care of him. What can we possibly do to help you 
to, to, to alleviate your suffering? What can we do for you? Did Tom want to commit suicide? Absolutely not. What did Tom want? He wanted to end the suffering and the body was just in the way. I hugged him and I never wanted to let him go. Did you ever feel that Dr. Kevorkian had ever done him any harm? <laughs> Dr. Kevorkian was the only person that was willing to help him. He was the only person that could help him. Are you telling us that at the time that Mr. Hyde got into the vehicle that you were expecting him back at the apartment later that day? Expecting? Yeah. I don't know how I felt right then. I don't know if I could say expecting. Tom's still alive to me. Tom's still here. I've, st I've seen him in my dreams. So Tom, it wasn't the last time I saw Tom. I never thought it was going to be the last time I was going to see him. My question for I you. I knew that his suffering was going to be over. Had you made plans for him to be home for dinner? <laughs> Let's see. Did I make plans for him to be home for dinner? I mean, did I take out some pork chops and thaw them out? Uh, no, I didn't do that. I wasn't really quite sure, Mr. Kenny. That was a very emotional day for me as, it, as a result of Tom's suffering being ended. Pardon me if I don't have total recall. So what is Jack Kevorkian's intent? What was Jack Kevorkian's intent with regards to this canister? This canister that was filled with carbon monoxide. You heard Dr. Kevorkian testify yesterday. You heard Dr. Kevorkian testify. I did not expect, I had no expectation that he would die. I surmised, I guessed that he might die. Ladies and gentlemen, that's an insult to you. Have we lost all sanity? My God. Are we not human? Is it possible? Is it possible that this can be happening today? Today in 1994, in April, we will send compassionate doctors to prison for helping us relieve our pain and suffering? It can't be. It can't be. Tom Hyde himself talked to you, and he talks to each and every one of you now from the grave. And what he says to me every day of my life, and I know what he says to Dr. Kevorkian every day of whatever life he has left, don't let me down. Don't let my life and my death be in vain. Don't back down. Don't stand down. Um, we, the jury, find the defendant, Jack Kevorkian, not guilty of assistance in the fact.